This is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you some of the greatest speeches that have touched our lives, well, in the past and closer to the present. And on this day in history, in 1989, President Ronald Reagan addressed our nation in his farewell speech. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses. They're great for the family. If you've gone to college, well, think again. And if you've got kids in grade school, high school, middle school, it's a perfect supplementary education. Heck, it's a replacement for the education your kids just might not be getting at school. Back to our This Day in History, here's how President Reagan began his address. My fellow Americans, this is the 34th time I'll speak to you from the Oval Office and the last. We've been together eight years now, and soon it'll be time for me to go. But before I do, I wanted to share some thoughts, some of which I've been saving for a long time. It's been the honor of my life to be your president. So many of you have written the past few weeks to say thanks, but I could say as much to you. Nancy and I are grateful for the opportunity you gave us to serve. One of the things about the presidency is that you're always somewhat apart. You spend a lot of time going by too fast in a car someone else is driving and seeing the people through tinted glass, the parents holding up a child and the wave you saw too late and couldn't return, and so many times, I wanted to stop and reach out from behind the glass and connect. Well, maybe I can do a little of that tonight. People ask how I feel about leaving, and the fact is, parting is such sweet sorrow. The sweet part is California and the ranch and freedom. The sorrow, the goodbyes, of course, and leaving this beautiful place. You know, down the hall and up the stairs from this office, is the part of the White House where the President and his family live. There are a few favorite windows I have up there that I like to stand and look out of early in the morning. The view is over the grounds here to the Washington Monument and then the Mall and the Jefferson Memorial. But on mornings when the humidity is low, you can see past the Jefferson to the river, the Potomac, and the Virginia shore. Someone said that's the view Lincoln had when he saw the smoke rising from the Battle of Bull Run. But I see more prosaic things. The grass on the banks, the morning traffic as people make their way to work, now and then a sailboat on the river. I've been thinking a bit at that window. I've been reflecting on what the past eight years have meant and mean. And the image that comes to mind like a refrain is a nautical one. A small story about a big ship and a refugee and a sailor. It was back in the early 80s at the height of the boat people and the sailor was hard at work on the carrier Midway, which was patrolling the South China Sea. The sailor, like most American servicemen, was young, smart, and fiercely observant. The crew spied on the horizon a leaky little boat, and crammed inside were refugees from Indochina, hoping to get to America. The Midway sent a small launch to bring them to the ship and safety. As the refugees made their way through the choppy seas, one spied the sailor on deck, and stood up and called out to him. He yelled, Hello, American sailor. Hello, freedom man. A small moment with a big meaning. A moment the sailor who wrote it in a letter couldn't get out of his mind. And when I saw it, neither could I. Because that's what it was to be an American in the 1980s. 
We stood again for freedom. I know we always have, but in the past few years, the world, again, and in a way, we ourselves rediscovered it. Reagan then elaborated on the major changes he saw in the 1980s. The way I see it, there were two great triumphs, two things that I'm proudest of. One is the economic recovery in which the people of America created and filled 19 million new jobs. The other is the recovery of our morale. America is respected again in the world and looked to for leadership. Something that happened to me a few years ago reflects some of this. It was back in 1981, and I was attending my first big economic summit, which was held that year in Canada. The meeting place rotates among the member countries. The opening meeting was a formal dinner for the heads of government of the seven industrialized nations. Well, I sat there like the new kid in school and listened, and it was all Francois this and Helmut that. They dropped titles and spoke to one another on a first-name basis. Well, at one point, I sort of leaned in and said, my name's Ron. But in that same year, we began the actions we felt would ignite an economic comeback, cut taxes and regulation, started to cut spending, and soon the recovery began. Two years later, another economic summit with pretty much the same cast. At the big opening meeting, we all got together, and all of a sudden, just for a moment, I saw that everyone was just sitting there looking at me. And then one of them broke the silence. Tell us about the American miracle, he said. Well, back in 1980, when I was running for president, it was all so different. Some pundits said our programs would result in catastrophe. Our views on foreign affairs would cause war. Our plans for the economy would cause inflation to soar and bring about economic collapse. I even remember one highly respected economist saying back in 1982 that the engines of economic growth have shut down here and they're likely to stay that way for years to come. Well, he and the other opinion leaders were wrong. The fact is, what they called radical was really right. What they called dangerous was just desperately needed. And in all of that time, I won a nickname, the Great Communicator. But I never thought it was my style or the words I used that made a difference. It was the content. I wasn't a great communicator, but I communicated great things. And they didn't spring full bloom from my brow. They came from the heart of a great nation from our experience, our wisdom, and our belief in the principles that have guided us for two centuries. They called it the Reagan Revolution, and I'll accept that, but for me it always seemed more like the great rediscovery, a rediscovery of our values and our common sense. And when we come back, more from Ronald Reagan, his farewell address on this day in history in 1989.
This is Our American Stories, and we're listening to President Ronald Reagan's farewell address. Again, on this day in history, he delivered this to the American people from the Oval Office in 1989. He had just been speaking of international leaders asking him to talk about the American miracle, about how Americans created and filled 19 million jobs. To Reagan, this was just a rediscovery of our values and common sense. Common sense told us that when you put a big tax on something, the people will produce less of it. So we cut the people's tax rates, and the people produced more than ever before. The economy bloomed like a plant that had been cut back and could now grow quicker and stronger. Our economic program brought about the longest peacetime expansion in our history. Real family income up, the poverty rate down, entrepreneurship booming, and an explosion in research and new technology. We're exporting more now than ever because American industry became more competitive. And at the same time, we summoned the national will to knock down protectionist walls abroad instead of erecting them at home. Common sense also told us that to preserve the peace, we'd have to become strong again after years of weakness and confusion. So we rebuilt our defenses. And this new year, we toasted the new peacefulness around the globe. Not only have the superpowers actually begun to reduce their stockpiles of nuclear weapons and hope for even more progress is bright, but the regional conflicts that rack the globe are also beginning to cease. The Persian Gulf is no longer a war zone. The Soviets are leaving Afghanistan. The Vietnamese are preparing to pull out of Cambodia. And an American-mediated accord will soon send 50,000 Cuban troops home from Angola. The lesson of all this was, of course, that because we're a great nation, our challenges seem complex. It will always be this way. But as long as we remember our first principles and believe in ourselves, the future will always be ours. And something else we learned. Once you begin a great movement, there's no telling where it'll end. We meant to change a nation, and instead, we changed a world. Countries across the globe are turning to free markets and free speech and turning away from the ideologies of the past. For them, the great rediscovery of the 1980s has been that, lo and behold, the moral way of government is the practical way of government. Democracy, the profoundly good, is also the profoundly productive. The moral way of government is also the productive way of government and the practical And this is what Reagan did best, connect the moral uh, to the practical. And with all this, Reagan then moved the speech to the bigger picture principles that drove all of this growth and all of this progress. When you've got to the point where you can celebrate the anniversaries of your 39th birthday, you can sit back sometimes, review your life, and see it flowing before you. For me, there was a fork in the river, and it was right in the middle of my life. I never meant to go into politics. It wasn't my intention when I was young. But I was raised to believe you had to pay your way for the blessings bestowed on you. I was happy with my career in the entertainment world, but I ultimately went into politics because I wanted to protect something precious. Ours was the first revolution in the history of mankind that truly reversed the course of government and with three little words, we the people. 
We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go and by what route and how fast. Almost all the world's constitutions are documents in which governments tell the people what their privileges are. Our constitution is a document in which we the people tell the government what it is allowed to do. We the people are free. This belief has been the underlying basis for everything I've tried to do these past eight years. But back in the 1960s when I began, it seemed to me that we'd begun reversing the order of things. That through more and more rules and regulations and confiscatory taxes, the government was taking more of our money, more of our options, and more of our freedom. I went into politics in part to put up my hand and say, stop. I was a citizen politician, and it seemed the right thing for a citizen to do. I think we have stopped a lot of what needed stopping. And I hope we have once again reminded people that man is not free unless government is limited. There's a clear cause and effect here that is as neat and predictable as a law of physics. As government expands, liberty contracts. And we are still having these discussions today. We had him at the founding of our country. And Reagan is talking about, as always, first principles here. How much government and why? Who pays? And what about freedom in all of this? With all this talk of big government's threat to liberty, Reagan naturally turned his attention to the ultimate big government ideology. Nothing is less free than pure communism, and yet we have the past few years forged a satisfying new closeness with the Soviet Union. I've been asked if this isn't a gamble, and my answer is no, because we're basing our actions not on words, but deeds. The detente of the 1970s was based not on actions, but promises. They'd promised to treat their own people and the people of the world better, but the gulag was still the gulag, and the state was still expansionist, and they still waged proxy wars in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Well, this time, so far, it's different. President Gorbachev has brought about some internal democratic reforms and begun the withdrawal from Afghanistan. He has also freed prisoners whose names I've given him every time we've met. But life has a way of reminding you of big things through small incidents. Once during the heady days of the Moscow summit, Nancy and I decided to break off from the entourage one afternoon to visit the shops on Arbat Street. That's a little street just off Moscow's main shopping area. Even though our visit was a surprise, Every Russian there immediately recognized us and called out our names and reached for our hands. We were just about swept away by the warmth. You could almost feel the possibilities in all that joy. But within seconds, a KGB detail pushed their way toward us and began pushing and shoving the people in the crowd. It was an interesting moment. It reminded me that while the man on the street in the Soviet Union yearns for peace, the government is communist. And those who run it are communists. And that means we and they view such issues as freedom and human rights very differently. We must keep up our guard. But we must also continue to work together to lessen and eliminate tension and mistrust. My view is that President Gorbachev is different from previous Soviet leaders. 
I think he knows some of the things wrong with his society and is trying to fix them. We wish him well. And we'll continue to work to make sure that the Soviet Union that eventually emerges from this process is a less threatening one. What it all boils down to is this. I want the new closeness to continue. And it will, as long as we make it clear that we will continue to act in a certain way as long as they continue to act in a helpful manner. If and when they don't, at first, pull your punches. If they persist, pull the plug. It's still trust, but verify. It's still play, but cut the cards. It's still watch closely, and don't be afraid to see what you see. When we come back, more from Ronald Reagan's farewell address from the Oval Office. He gave this speech in 1989 on this day in history. As always, again, our This Days in History are brought to us from the great folks at Hillsdale College. And it wasn't too long after this speech that the Berlin Wall fell. You saw people celebrating, pulling pieces of the wall, putting them in their pockets, keeping them. And it's so hard to imagine now or to tell people who were born after this period that to have left East Germany was to have risked your life, to have been a prisoner in a place, surrounded by a wall and a fence. That's what communism led to. Ronald Reagan understood this implicitly. So did John F. Kennedy, by the way. Two great anti-communist presidents, one a Republican, one a Democrat. And when we come back, more of Ronald Reagan's final and farewell address from the Oval Office. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue with Ronald Reagan's final address, his farewell address from the Oval Office. And on this day in history in 1989, he made this speech. By the way, few presidents made better speeches. We know that Churchill understood the power of words and then putting those words into action. They weren't just words, they were weapons when properly deployed. And Reagan did such a beautiful job here in his last speech. Here, having spoken of the two great triumphs of his time in office, Reagan now looked past that to what concerned him going forward. There is a great tradition of warnings in presidential farewells, and I've got one that's been on my mind for some time. But oddly enough, it starts with one of the things I'm proudest of in the past eight years, the resurgence of national pride that I called the new patriotism. This national feeling is good, but it won't count for much, and it won't last unless it's grounded in thoughtfulness and knowledge. 
An informed patriotism is what we want. And are we doing a good enough job teaching our children what America is and what she represents in the long history of the world? Those of us who are over 35 or so years of age grew up in a different America. We were taught very directly what it means to be an American. And we absorbed almost in the air a love of country and an appreciation of its institutions. If you didn't get these things from your family, you got them from the neighborhood, from the father down the street who fought in Korea, or the family who lost someone at Anzio. Or you could get a sense of patriotism from school. And if all else failed, you could get a sense of patriotism from the popular culture. The movies celebrated democratic values and implicitly reinforced the idea that America was special. TV was like that, too, through the mid-60s. But now we're about to enter the 90s, and some things have changed. Younger parents aren't sure that an unambivalent appreciation of America is the right thing to teach modern children. And as for those who create the popular culture, well-grounded patriotism is no longer the style. Our spirit is back, but we haven't re-institutionalized it. We've got to do a better job of getting across that America is freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, and freedom is special and rare. So we've got to teach history based not on what's in fashion, but what's important. Why the pilgrims came here, who Jimmy Doolittle was, and what those 30 seconds over Tokyo meant. You know, four years ago on the 40th anniversary of D-Day, I read a letter from a young woman writing to her late father who had fought on Omaha Beach. Her name was Lisa Zanata Hen, and she said, we will always remember, we will never forget what the boys of Normandy did. Well, let's help her keep her word. If we forget what we did, we won't know who we are. I'm warning of an eradication of that of the American memory that could result ultimately in an erosion of the American spirit. Let's start with some basics. More attention to American history and a greater emphasis on civic ritual. And let me offer lesson number one about America. All great change in America begins at the dinner table. So tomorrow night in the kitchen, I hope the talking begins. And children, if your parents haven't been teaching you what it means to be an American, let them know and nail them on it. That would be a very American thing to do. If we forget what we did, we'll forget who we are. And not nearly enough history is taught in our schools. My little Reagan is doing, well, it's called social studies now, and it's world history. And there's almost no time spent on American history. Reagan understood this in the 1990s. It's come to pass now, and I think so many of us and so many of you listening appreciate that we spend so much time on our nation's history uh, because it is so important. And finally, this is how Reagan concluded his farewell speech to the American people. The past few days when I've been at that window upstairs, I've thought a bit of the shining city upon a hill. The phrase comes from John Winthrop who wrote it to describe the America he imagined. What he imagined was important because he was an early pilgrim, an early freedom man. He journeyed here on what today we'd call a little wooden boat. And like the other pilgrims, he was looking for a home that would be free. 
I've spoken of the Shining City all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with pre-ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. And how stands the city on this winter night? More prosperous, more secure, and happier than it was eight years ago. But more than that, after 200 years, two centuries, she still stands strong and true on the granite ridge, and her glow is held steady no matter what storm. And she's still a beacon, still a magnet for all who must have freedom, for all the pilgrims from all the lost places who are hurtling through the darkness toward home. We've done our part, and as I walk off into the city streets, a final word to the men and women of the Reagan Revolution, the men and women across America who for eight years did the work that brought America back. My friends, we did it. We weren't just marking time. We made a difference. We made the city stronger. We made the city freer. And we left her in good hands. All in all, not bad. Not bad at all. And so, goodbye. God bless you. And God bless the United States of America. And the country was watching this and riveted. Again, few people commanded the English language like Reagan did. I think only Kennedy and Roosevelt in the 20th century, and most certainly Winston Churchill in the 20th century. And by the way, we've done two terrific hours on Winston Churchill in large help and measure thanks to Dr. Larry Arn, who has written so much and so often and spoken so often about Churchill. Churchill's Trial is a terrific book. And the links between the United States and Great Britain, from the Magna Carta to the Declaration of Independence, straight through to the U.S. Constitution, and that Reagan talked about an informed patriotism, a well-grounded patriotism, not jingoism, well-informed, well-earned, well-grounded patriotism, so missing in this great country. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, and I have the pleasure of teaching there a couple of weeks a year, and what they learn there, those students, isn't nearly as much as what I learn, because I love crashing the classes there, and I'd gone to a great American law school at the University of Virginia, but I learn more about law when I go to Hillsdale College and the American Constitution than I did at that institution. And so if you get a chance, go to hillsdale.edu, that's hillsdale.edu. The Constitution course alone, Constitution 101, is just so good. The whole family should watch it. You have some time. You have a little bit of an extended weekend. The kids seem bored. They shouldn't be. Gather around the TV, put it on the old smart TV, and just listen to one of the great American classrooms of all time. There's also the terrific online course on economics, and my favorite, the terrific course taught by a visiting professor from Oxford on the life of C.S. Lewis. This is Lee Habib on this day in history in 1989. President Ronald Reagan gave his farewell address to the American people.
This is Our American Stories, and today we have one of our favorite regular features, The Villages Stories. Our youngest producer, Faith, has been going to The Villages, Florida, for quite some time. It's the largest retirement community in the country with over 150,000 residents. This time, she brings us a story from a woman named Violet, touching on an important topic, single motherhood. Take it away, Faith. The Villages has all kinds of different people. But everyone from the outside can often seem the same. But the more I talk to the folks there, the more I realize the variety of different backgrounds that exist, including the different types of struggles that people have gone through. This time around, I spoke with Violet, the leader of a hula dance troupe. She has loved dancing her whole life, but didn't get into it just for fun at first. When I was a baby, I was very, very pigeon-toed, and my, I would you know, literally fall if I'd run, I'd trip over my own feet and fall. So the doctors wanted my mother to put me in those, these uh, braces that spread your feet apart like this, and it's metal. And uh, she didn't want to do that. And so she put me in dance. So I started dancing at two and a half. That's how I started. So that's why I started so young. But I loved it. I mean, I, you know, tap and ballet. And then all throughout my childhood, I did, um, you know, tap and ballet pretty much. Uh, High school, I was in the modern dance club. And I competed. I competed in line dancing. And I did competition country western couples. And actually, that's how my husband now, how we met. He was one of the judges in one of the dances, uh, competition contest that I was in. He saw me, he couldn't keep his eyes off me, he said. So, and then that's, um, I think that's kind of a life changing because I find I was mostly single most of my my life with my kids. So I struggled, had a lot of struggles. Were you married before? I was married a few times, yeah, but uh, I guess you can say, you know, just choose wrong or, you know, anything. I can't explain it. She mentioned choosing wrong before she met her now husband. So, what was life like for Violet? Turns out she raised four children on her own, which of course involved a lot of sacrifice. I'll tell you how poor we were one time when I was single and uh, had real tight budget. Um, it's kind of a sad thing because uh, my youngest daughter was maybe six or seven. It was a Christmas, and I had no extra money to buy Christmas, not even from from Santa Claus, put anything in their stockings, nothing. And so that Christmas, I had to tell my youngest daughter, because the others already knew that there was no Santa Claus. And I just, I think I just crushed her. That was a hard, that was hard for me to tell her. And she, you know, that broke her heart, but I, you know, that's how poor at one point we were, but you just, you just push through it. You just got to push through it and do the best you can and, and do a lot of praying that, you know, for guidance. And sometimes she had to even give up sleep just to make ends meet. When it got real tight, I had to get a second job. And I got a, a job with uh, the Wall Street Journal throwing the paper. And, I, I, and that was a good route because Wall Street Journal doesn't come out on Saturdays and Sundays, just during the week. So I would get up like at 1 in the morning get ready. And my kids were old enough to get themselves ready and catch the school bus. Thank, you know, thank God for that. And um, 
I'd get myself ready. I'd have to go pick up my papers by 2.30, and then I'd go to my route, which was kind of far, south side of Houston, and I'd throw my paper route, and then I would go to work, starting at 7 o'clock in the morning. And then I'd come home. I had a little bit of time. I had to, I had to be in bed by no later than, for me, to get the sleep I needed, no later than 7 o'clock at night. I mean, anywhere between five, and so that was that was uh, that was difficult. So that's what I did to get to get me some more extra money. So you did the work of a paper boy, but you know through the car. You saw I was very good at slinging those papers. <laughs> yeah, I'd sling it across. I had a small car too. But how long did you do that for? I did that for about eight months. I, I, the stuff that I've gone through is like, oh my God, did I do that? I'm sure your kids appreciate you a lot. They do. They do. I'm sure when they were younger, they couldn't understand, well, how come I can't have a car? You know, Susie, Joe, parents bought her a brand new car to go to school. Well, I know I couldn't. I couldn't. I didn't have a brand new car. Wait, are there, so I'm sure when they're younger, they didn't understand. Have there been epiphanic moments for them? My youngest daughter, uh, she was in the Navy. She's uh, 40. She's her 40th this year. Uh, she has. She has come to understand what I had gone through and she understands that you know I was very strict very strict mother and you had to be with four kids by yourself I was a very strict mother do you think you were too strict at times <laughs> no I don't I really don't I mean it, they, they've turned out beautifully my kids I think I know she understood they understand I mean um I mean, they knew I loved them. I mean, I didn't hate them. You know, it was strict for their own good, you know. Just like, you know, you need to go to work and you need to you need to pay for your clothes. And, and uh, it's still my oldest daughter to this day. The first thing she does when she goes shopping for clothes, she goes to the bargain rack. So it made her real, you know, thrifty with her money. So they, they all, get, you know, whether they believe it or not, they learned a lot from me. I still struggled. <laughs> I mean, I still struggled, and I worked hard. Um, the kids, you know, when they turned 16, they had to get a part-time job and help, you know, not so much help me, but to be able to buy their clothes, makeup, whatever they needed, shoes at that point. That, and I think that taught them how to take care of themselves. So all my experiences in life, I think, helped it build, build me, build me, made me strong. When do you feel like you saw the light at the end of the tunnel? When I got my manager job, uh, you know, the money, I, I made pretty, not great money, but I made decent money. I was able to buy a house on my own. Um, and so, I, you know, it started, things started falling into place then. And then shortly after that's when I met my husband, Bill. What was it that helped her through this difficult time? My church. I found... Um, when I was, when the kids were younger, I, I grew up Catholic. Of course, my mother was in Italy. Of course, I'd be Catholic, right? Um, but I found another church, um, the LDS Church, Latter-day Saint. It's Mormons. That was a big turning point for me. It gave, like you said, it gave me strength. It gave me focus. Uh, it, made, it gave me, it helped me to know who I was, where I was going, and why I was here. I mean, all those questions people go, you know, what's the purpose of life? What's this and that and the other? And, and what so, are those things for you? 
It's in the belief of the Mormon Church. It tells you, in, in this church, it tells you that uh, families are forever, not just, um, not just here on earth, but you will be reunited with your family, your husband, your wife, wife or whatever, your children, and your grandparents. So you'll be reunited there. So and if you believe those things, you know, it's just, then it's not so scared, scary, you know, like what's going to happen to me or what, you know. So you know that stuff. So it gives you, that part gives you strength to, to go on. Many people look to religion to help them through hard times. It gives them some sort of stability, a community, and the support that they need in order to keep going. So for a young single mom, or say yourself, what would you want to go back and tell yourself? How would you encourage someone who's in that position? Because that's hard. It is very hard. I would say, you know, just continue on, just push through it, push through it, because it's not going to be forever. You're going to get past that point of struggling and so it's something, but God will reward you for the struggles you've gone through. And, and so just push through it. Just keep on, keep on, keep, keep your head straight there. Violet worked extremely hard. And thankfully, her hard work began to pay off. I have an enormous amount of respect for her. Sacrificing sleep, money, and comfort in order to provide and protect her kids. She learned and grew as a person in ways that she otherwise wouldn't have. And her kids have grown to understand the sacrifices she made, even though at times before it was hard for them to understand. And they were all so happy that she found her husband. Someone to take care of her, protect her, the way that she did for them. So while Violet has had some difficulties, things seem to be going quite a bit better. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories reporting to you from the Villages, Florida. And thanks as always for that report, Faith. And thank you, Violet. Push through it, she said. Push through it. And God will reward you for the struggle you've gone through. And for all the single moms out there, and my bride's mom was a single mom, four kids. And I was just thinking about her because she worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, no vacation. My wife never remembered her mother taking a single vacation. Sometimes the lights wouldn't come on and they got through it and all the girls graduated from college. So push through and we celebrate single moms all over this country. It's hard enough being a mom with a husband. It's really tough without one. Violet's story here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this day in history, Alexander Hamilton was born. And for the hour, we're going to spend some time with and talking about this remarkable historic figure. And you're going to hear from Ron Chernow, who wrote what is certainly the definitive biography of Alexander Hamilton, and the book that inspired, as you'll come to learn, the play on Broadway that is just sweeping actually the nation. You cannot get a ticket. Try as you may. I had some friends fly up around Christmas time, and I had urged them to see the play, and he ended up having to pay $400 a seat in order to see it. And he did, and he told me he was glad he did. Um, and now I'm helping him pay off the balance to a loan shark. It, it's, it's worth the price of admission, folks. Get the play. And it's not, it's the kind of play, I saw it way back when it was being workshopped at the public theater. And it's the kind of play that is not contingent on a star. In fact, it is the kind of play that will make stars. And it is an unlikely cast, it's unlikely music, and it's stunning. And it tells you that the Founding Fathers' vision is alive and well, and that it touched a young writer of the caliber of the playwright of Hamilton all those years later, and that that book did, is a remarkable story. And Hamilton's was a remarkable story indeed. He was an immigrant to the United States, one of the seven foreign-born signers of the Constitution, something we don't often hear about. He was aide to camp to then General George Washington, the nation's first Treasury Secretary, the founder of the Federalist Party, our nation's financial system, the United States Coast Guard, and the New York Post. Not bad for one life. Hamilton was a prolific author, including 51 of the 85 essays that formed the Federalist Papers. And he was one of only three non-presidents to have his face on American currency. Sacagawea on the $1 coin, Hamilton on the $10 bill, and Ben Franklin on the 100 In 2004, author Ron Chernow published the definitive biography of his life titled Alexander Hamilton. And on this day that Hamilton was born, we take you to select portions of a talk Chernow gave about his book to the New York Historical Society. Chernow started things out, like all good stories, at the beginning of Alexander Hamilton's life. He was an illegitimate boy born on the British island of Nevis, and as Dick Gilder indicated, he had suffered through a series of childhood traumas that would have shattered a lesser figure. Again, to reiterate, his father abandons the family when Alexander is 11. Mother dies of tropical fever when he's 13. He's then farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide years later. Calamities of biblical proportion seem to find their way to this young man. I had a friend of mine once describe how Alexander Hamilton's childhood. Thus, he had more sad stories than the Old Testament. And he did. And as Chernow described, my goodness. Father abandons family at 11. Mother dies of tropical fever at 13. Farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide. You can't make this stuff up. It's so bad. Despite the traumas, he's a precocious young man. In 1772, in other words, about a year before the Boston Tea Party, 
a monster hurricane lashes St. Croix, and this self-taught prodigy sits down and he pens a description of the hurricane of such precocious force and eloquence that the local merchants, recognizing this wonder in their midst, band together to finance his education in North America. The wunderkind studied at King's College in Lower Manhattan, later renamed Columbia, King's being a slightly awkward and inconvenient name after the revolution. And already as undergraduate extraordinaire, Hamilton is publishing stirring pamphlets against the British. He takes up a musket and he drills with his fellow students in nearby St. Paul's churchyard, today adjacent to Ground Zero. And he delivers spellbinding speeches to large crowds on what is today New York City Hall Park. So you're getting to know just a little bit about the nature and character of this young man and overcoming obstacles, overcoming status, overcoming regional differences. This young man thrives in what is Upper Manhattan. Hamilton's Strange Studies, take a listen. Hamilton also totes along six volumes of Plutarch's Lives, and he takes the empty pages of a military paybook, and we see him recording notes on foreign exchange, population growth, geography, even European rivers that he will never set eyes on. In fact, in his notes, very interesting notes culled from Plutarch, we see a young man who seems absolutely bewitched by the bizarre sexual practices of ancient Rome. For instance, Hamilton noted that in ancient Rome, young married women seemed to enjoy being whipped by lusty young noblemen. Why? Because they thought that it aided conception. I can tell you, when you study our founding fathers, you are led down all sorts of unexpected byways. (laughs) So true. And what's so wonderful about Chernoff's storytelling is that he humanizes the human. And anyone who gets through American history courses and finds them boring, it's not the history that's boring, folks. It's your teacher. It's your teacher. And regrettably, too many history teachers kill this otherwise unbelievable material. Plutarch. I mean, he's studying Plutarch. He's studying foreign exchanges. Who studies both of those things, let alone one? A kid who finds himself at Columbia University. Pretty unbelievable. And by the way, this day in history is brought to you by our sponsors and our partners at Hillsdale College. Where, my goodness, you can actually learn stuff. Like Plutarch. Maybe not foreign currencies, but certainly Hamilton. You'll learn about the Federalist Papers. My goodness, you'll read them. You'll actually enjoy them. When we come back, more on the life of Alexander Hamilton, born on this day in history in 1755.
This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And on this day in history, one of our nation's founders and one of the most compelling, Alexander Hamilton, was born in 1755. A play based on the Ron Chernow book is knocking it out of the park on the Broadway box office. I've seen the workshop version at the Public Theater, and I can't wait to see the play itself. I have I can't remember a play that got this kind of universal acclaim in my lifetime, actually. And all an accurate portrayal, by all means and by all accounts that I've read, of this remarkable life. And everybody says, oh, these... These old characters from the 18th century that founded this country. How boring. Boring. Get a grip. Think about what it must have been like to be alive then. Think about what challenges these guys faced. Who they were. Who they were fighting. What they were putting together. We take all this stuff for granted, folks. None of it was here. And it wasn't there. Well, we're joined for the hour by Ron Chernow, who wrote the Alexander Hamilton biography entitled Alexander Hamilton. Pretty smart, to just keep it simple. Chernow let the life story do the talking, and nobody is a better writer. Get this book. You can't put it down. The playwright couldn't. That's how these things happened. He was laying off vacationing, had just finished some kind of hip-hop musical, and who would have thought some kid would have connected with Hamilton and then turned that into a hip-hop musical, his life story. By the way, all the characters, or most of them, many of them, the key ones, played by African-Americans. So this play, they play with race, with history, with time, with everything. It's wonderful. And Ron Chernow gave this talk back in 2004 to the New York Historical Society, and that's where we're going to bring you back to. And we love to do that here at Our American Stories. So let's talk about where we left off. And... Here's what Chernow had to say about how Hamilton is not too often portrayed. Now, you'll hear it said, and very often it's taught this way in school, that Hamilton was a ferocious snob, that he was the stooge of the plutocrats of his day. In fact, it would be despot with Napoleonic ambitions. And, of course, in this particular morality play of early American history, Thomas Jefferson is always represented as the pure and virtuous tribune of the people. Now, in the book, I don't entirely stand the stereotype um, on its head, but I do try to uh, argue both for Hamiltonians and even, dare I say, Jeffersonians, that the situation was far more complicated than that historical cartoon. Case in point, during the Revolutionary War, it is Hamilton, of course, who champions an audacious plan to emancipate any slave who's willing to pick up a musket for the continental cause. In the 1780s, mid-1780s, it is Hamilton who co-founds the first abolitionist society in New York, the New York Manumission Society. In fact, the records, the minutes of those uh, meetings are actually upstairs in this very building where I did an enormous amount of research for the book. Remember that trading firm in St. Croix that I had uh, mentioned that Hamilton worked for as a teenager? That firm had imported up to 300 slaves per year from Western Africa, and it's clear from Uh, subsequent actions that this first-hand experience of slavery left Hamilton with a permanent detestation of the system. In fact, Caribbean slavery was the most brutal in the world. Even those who managed to survive the Middle Passage, their life expectancy 
uh, once they started working in the sugarcane breaks of the West Indies was somewhere between three and five years. So you constantly have these poor people who are perishing in the fields, and the supply had to be constantly replenished. Hamilton, despite the historic stereotype, turns out to have been the most consistent abolitionist among the founders, bar none. I repeat, bar none. So when you look at the early history of the republic through the lens of slavery, not the only way to look at it, but I think a significant way, Hamilton begins to look a little bit more like the populist, and Jefferson and Madison, who owned 200 and 130 human beings respectively, begin to look a little more like the privileged aristocrats. Indeed. And some would argue that Hamilton was the most ambitious of abolitionists. But it wasn't just blacks and the poor and the disenfranchised and the slaves who he had in his heart. Hamilton, it also turns out, had very enlightened views about Native Americans. Many in this audience will know that there is a college in upstate New York called Hamilton College. Well, the origins of that school, it started out as a secondary school that was supposed to educate Native Americans. Hamilton lent his name and his prestige to that undertaking. Hamilton turns out to have had very benign and enlightened views about Jews. He said in an unpublished paper that the success of the Jews could only be explained by special providence. So here's this man whom we're taught to regard as this ferocious snob who again and again shows himself as not only devoid of prejudice but with a special sympathy for the oppressed. A special sympathy for the oppressed. And by the way, it makes perfect sense given his life background. And yet his appeal to the upper class and the appeal to making it that was there too. And this is not a contradiction, folks. You can do both. And he proved you could do both. So what about his role in helping form this little thing called our federal government? I think with the clear exception of George Washington, nobody did more than Alexander Hamilton to weld the 13 squabbling states into the powerful nation we know today. Hamilton personally drafts the first appeal for the Constitutional Convention. He attends it. He is the sole New York delegate to sign it. It is Hamilton who dreams up and then supervises the most influential defense of the document ever written, the Federalist Papers. Of those 85 essays, Hamilton manages to draft an astonishing 51. No less astonishing, there are periods where he's publishing them at a rate of as many as five or six per week. No less astonishing, he's doing it as a sideline. He had a full-time legal practice. Five to six of the Federalist Papers a week as a sideline. And by the way, as you hear different people of different political persuasions talk about this achievement, bringing all the states and delegates together in Philadelphia. Remember, conservatives should remember this and Republicans, that the problem these men were trying to solve was actually bringing some consolidated power to Washington, D.C. Very difficult to wrap your heads around, but that was the case. We had 13 states with 13 different currencies. It wasn't working out, and there was no way to pay back war debt. So let's always remember these guys had nuanced opinions. There were battles going on between Hamilton and Jefferson, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists that we're going to learn about, we're still having these same discussions, folks, and these same arguments today because they're timeless arguments. But without Alexander Hamilton, as Ron Chernow said, and without George Washington, there is no America. There's just no way around it. And he wasn't born here. So it turns out this young, precocious guy, this incredible reader, this incredible and prolific writer, well, 
He liked to speak and write a whole lot. You could see where uh, the laconic Jefferson was quite understandably terrified of Hamilton's sheer brilliance. Uh, Hamilton was one of these frightening windbags whom you meet from time to time who can speak in perfectly worded paragraphs for hours on end, and Hamilton did. Hamilton also was one of these uh, intimidating characters who could and did toss off a 10,000-word opinion overnight for George Washington. And you could see in Jefferson's diary that he's really struggling with Hamilton. Uh, quote, Hamilton made a speech of three-quarters of an hour in the cabinet today as if he had been speaking to a jury. The next day, Jefferson wearily records, Hamilton spoke again for three-quarters of an hour. <laughs> Hamilton was, quite frankly, a word machine. Hamilton wrote enough in 49 years to fill 22,000 pages in the latest edition of his collected papers. And your speaker this evening, I confess, was masochistic enough to read uh, every one of those pages. It is said that Harold Sirrett, who edited the papers for Columbia University Press, an outstanding job, um, Harold Sirrett evidently uh, used to joke that he intended to dedicate the many volumes to Aaron Burr, quote, without whose cooperation this project would never have been completed. <laughs> uh, nothing like a good history joke to get the history crowd going. And you'll learn if you don't know why that joke's funny. Well, we're not going to tell you right now, uh, but we will tell you in a bit. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking about the life of Alexander Hamilton and what better man to tell it than the author of the definitive biography on Hamilton, Ron Chernow, and his 2004 discussion with the New York Historical Society. If you go to New York... Make sure you go there. It's as good as going to the Metropolitan Opera or the Beacon for a concert. Go there. The New York Historical Society. We're taking you there today. This again is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking about the life of Alexander Hamilton. And we're going to hear more from Ron Chernow in a moment. This hour is brought to you by Hillsdale College. And at Hillsdale, you'll learn about folks like Alexander Hamilton. You'll read his works, particularly. Not someone's opinions about Hamilton, but Hamilton in his own words. It's really depressing when we got folks caricaturing our founders with their opinions and not exposing young and old people alike to the magic, the wisdom, and the genius of our founders. We're not America without a man like Alexander Hamilton, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And we wouldn't be the great country we are without him. And you also learn that a guy like this, the walking in History didn't know he was walking in history. It's a point that David McCulloch makes in a great speech in Hillsdale College. I think we're going to play it one day soon. 
because it's so important. He's talking to all these students, and they're asking him essentially, what's it like writing about history? What, what was it like studying these men? And he said, well, the first thing I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, is they didn't know they were making history. They weren't sitting around, he said, in their little white wigs going, oh, isn't it interesting, wearing these funny uniforms and these funny clothes and these wigs and re- getting ready for people to write stories about us. They were engaged in an epic struggle. They didn't know how the war was going to end. They didn't know whether there'd be a constitution. They had no idea what the outcome was going to be. And this is why I think we're bringing you Ron Chernow, because he actually manages, as he tells the story of Hamilton, to bring us right back there. And we don't know how it's going to end. I mean, we sort of do. We're living in America. We know it's a functioning democracy, I think. But then they didn't know, and they really didn't. And so we left you off with Ron Chernow at the New York Historical Society, one of the great institutions in the country, in Manhattan, talking about the life of Hamilton in 2004 because he had just dropped on the American public this great biography called Alexander Hamilton. And he dug into this speech a particular part of Hamilton's life. The Federalist Papers were written anonymously. And Chernow talks about the importance of anonymous speech for our founders, which surely caused folks like Thomas Jefferson real headaches. Even as Treasury Secretary, we find Hamilton dabbling in anonymous journalism under a bewildering variety of Roman pseudonyms. Hamilton launched one series of essays under the guise of Camillus. This is while he's Treasury Secretary. And then a simultaneous series called Philo Camillus that extravagantly heaps praise on the brilliance of Camillus. <laughs> when Washington, when um, Hamilton publishes some article supporting uh, Washington's neutrality proclamation, Jefferson contacted James Madison and pleaded with him to rebut Hamilton in print, quote, for God's sake, my dear sir, take up your pen, select the most striking heresies and cut Hamilton to pieces. There is nobody else who can and will enter the list with him. There is nobody else in America who could enter the lists with Alexander Hamilton. And as you'll see from the book, even James Madison often shrank from the invitation. Wow. And James Madison was no lightweight. Jefferson wasn't either, but he was just way out of his league. Everyone was, as Chernow indicated. And by the way, just digging into that anonymous speech a bit more, you know, the Federalist Papers were published anonymously. And to this day, when you start to hear people question or ask who gave a donation to what or why, you always got to ask yourself why they're asking the question. Some people might just want to give to an organization anonymously for the precise reason that someone might be trying to punish them for that donation. And this anonymity in speech is a very rich tradition. Indeed, one of the worst cases in American history, the Alabama versus the state of Alabama versus NAACP, some white donors had given money to the NAACP. The state of Alabama came in and said, we want to know, NAACP, who gave that money. Now, the state of Alabama was up to no good. And thank goodness the Supreme Court upheld the anonymity of that donation. Because when the state's knocking on the door to try and figure out who you voted for or what you gave money to, no good could come of that. And here was Alexander Hamilton understanding that. And understanding, most importantly, it was the message that mattered, not the author. The message that mattered. 
Well, a little bit later, we get into, well, the, the really remarkable death of Alexander Hamilton because he's obviously killed in a duel. And Burr does the, Burr does the killing. And, well, here's Burr on killing Hamilton. Burr was never unduly disturbed by having killed Hamilton. He had a rather macabre sense of humor. He liked to refer jokingly, quote, to my friend Hamilton, whom I shot. <laughs> my friend Hamilton, whom I shot. And by the way, that happened in Weehawken, New Jersey, one town over from where my mom and dad met and ultimately got married. And that is literally a stone's throw away. You can just look across the Hudson River. These spectacular views. It's worth going through the Lincoln Tunnel, going into that particular part of Weehawk, and there's a statue there. And you see the paces. You can see where these guys counted it off, turned around, and just shot at each other. Because, darn it, that's how men settled disputes back then. You can't even imagine it. And now when I hear, oh, my goodness, the political debates, they're just so hard. I go, oh, my goodness, read a little history. This is mild. We call each other some names, and then we go out to our press conferences and our our gaggles and off to a a really nice dinner on K Street. Here's how Ron Chernow ended things in this really remarkable story of his own book in 2004 at the New York Historical Society. You have the entire early history of America wrapped up in this single personal drama. I would maintain that from Lexington and Concord in 1775 to at least Jefferson's uh, first inauguration in 1801, nobody stood more consistently at the center of American political life than Alexander Hamilton. This is a story, an incredible story, of an illegitimate orphan young man who comes out of nowhere, sets the world on fire, and grows up quite literally alongside his adopted country. Thank you. Quite a talk, and you can just Google that and find it, by the way, and so much more. Chernow did a tour around that time. He also did a remarkable piece on C-SPAN. Go into their archives, type it, and pretty soon on ouramericannetwork.org, we will actually start linking the direct links and pictures of the video. So you can just go on there, and if you don't want to hear us blabber on, you go straight to the source itself and listen to that. Either way, no harm here. We're happy to serve you either way. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is our This Day in History feature. And we're talking about the life of Alexander Hamilton, his story, his prolific life. And again, 51 of the 85 essays that form the Federalist Papers were written by him. And look at this biography again. Aide to camp to then General George Washington, the nation's first Treasury Secretary, the founder of the Federalist Party, our nation's financial system, the United States Coast Guard, and the New York Post. Some think he created the first bond. And what could we have ever done in this country without that? And what was it? And what, an, what a financial genius. I wanted to leave with just one little thing. I'm reading 1776, and there's not much written in this book about Hamilton, but this little paragraph, which always caught my attention, It's about some battles, and here's what was written. Washington had reined in his horse and called off the pursuit. Another part of the army had entered the town where some 200 of the British garrison there had barricaded themselves inside the large stone main building of the cottage, Nassau Hall. When Captain Alexander Hamilton and his artillerymen fired a few rounds into the building, the Redcoats gave up. He was also a warrior, folks, in the heart of war, fighting the British when it mattered. 
with all on the line. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And each day we spend some time on our This Day in History segment. Sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's ten, sometimes it's thirty, sometimes it's an hour. Hey, every once in a while, it's two hours. That's what Walt Disney demanded. We couldn't condense his story into an hour. It was too, well, just ridiculous. It was too absurd. And unless you spend two hours, you couldn't bring it all together because people would have thought we were lying all he did in his life. And today we're spending the hour on Alexander Hamilton. And all of this is brought to you by our great partners and our sponsor at Hillsdale College, one of the finest colleges in this country and the only one that I think digs in in the classical liberal arts tradition from the Western canon, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, straight through the Bible, all the way to the founders, everything in between, literature, art, philosophy, and political, political theory as well but that's last not least and you can go to hillsdale.edu and you can see all of their great online content because you don't have to send a child to hillsdale though i'd i would advise it if you would because it is a remarkable place to send your child they will come out to better for it and be well-prepared adults but hillsdale can come to you through their remarkable online courses and i've been talking earlier about the remarkable play in New York City, the musical Hamilton. And we wanted to play a little bit of music from it. And here is Guns and Ships. How does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower? How do we emerge victorious from the quagmire? Leave the battlefield waving Betsy Ross's flag higher? Yo, turns out we have a secret weapon, an immigrant. You know and love who's unafraid to step in. He's constantly confusing, confounding the British henchmen. Everyone give it up for America's favorite fighting Frenchman! I'm taking this horse, smell of rain, drinking red coats, weather with blood stains. Till I'm never gonna stop until I make a drop of burn them up and scatter the remains down. Watch me engaging them, escaping them, and raging them out. I go to France for more fun. I come back with more guns and ships. And so their balance shifts. We rendezvous with Rochambeau, consolidate their gifts. We can end this war in Yorktown, cut them off at sea. But for this to succeed, there's someone else we need. I know. Those are the words of Lynn manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton. He wrote the plot, music, lyrics, and even performs in it. I mean, it is stunning. And it makes you rethink rap. 
Whatever you might have thought about it, what was scat? Remember in the day when jazz scat artists were some of the most remarkable musicians? And I think he actually is trying to even save an art form itself. His rap didn't have to go the way it did with sort of sort of ghetto vulgarities. Didn't need to go that way. Oh, Alexander Hamilton. I have soldiers that will yield for you. If we manage to get this right, they'll surrender my early life. Leah Labresca at 538.com, that's Nate Silver's blog, said this about the play. The use of rap helps Miranda pack more than 20,000 words into two and a half hours. Roughly 144 words per minute. If Hamilton were sung at the pace of other Broadway shows I looked at, it would take anywhere between four and six hours. She found that the musical's fastest-paced verse from the song Guns and Ships clocked in at 6.3 words per second. So we wanted to dig into the archives here. And here's Ron Chernow, the author of Hamilton, talking about how he met Lin-Manuel Miranda. Let's take a listen. He told me that uh, Lin-Manuel had read my Hamilton book and uh, (laughs) made an enormous impression on him, and he wanted to to meet me. So I went to a matinee of um, In the Heights one Sunday, and he invited me backstage, and I said to him, so I gather my book made an impression on you. And he said, Ron, as I, w- I was reading it on vacation in Mexico, uh, and as I was reading it, hip-hop songs started rising off the page. So I said, really? This is not a typical reaction to one of my uh, books. And he asked me on the spot, to be the historical consultant. Uh, and so I said to him, you mean you want me to tell you when something is wrong? And he said, yes. He said, I want historians to take this seriously, which I think they, they are. Wow. So how did Miranda and Chernow work together? That launched what has uh, been an amazing six-year uh, process working with uh, him. And, you know, in the early period, we would have lunch and discuss psychology, mm-hmm. relationships. Uh, he would send me uh, via email every month one or two songs. I would just hear Lynn at the keyboard uh, playing it. And But then what happened, uh, once it started to go into various um, rehearsals and workshop productions, he would keep bringing me back in and then I would, I would have the uh, opportunity uh, afterwards to sit down for an hour or two and really uh, give him my... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, comments, and the comments. Uh, some of the comments were, um, if I thought something was factually uh, incorrect. Although I have to say he's very well read, uh, and he was um, almost always aware when he was departing from right, the, uh, right. the fact. So even when he did depart from facts, it was just to merely advance a very condensed plot. You know, you're taking a man's whole life in a book that's hundreds and hundreds of pages, and you're condensing it into two and a half hours of entertainment. So 
Let's hear more about this really unusual partnership. I think that there probably are a lot of historians and biographers who would not be entirely comfortable doing this uh, because you have to have some flexibility uh, mm. in terms of the requirements of uh, a show. I mean, here, you know, we were going from an 800-page book to a two-and-a-half-hour yeah. uh, musical, and my involvement uh, with the show made me realize... Uh, History is long, messy, and complicated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. You know, if there's one thing that we all learn as historians is um, how difficult it is to generalize. The more you know, the more, oh. the more yeah. difficult it is to simplify some of this. That's what I've been telling in the Mount Vernon. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, a two-and-a-half-hour show yeah. Yeah. Um, has to be um, short and tight and, uh, you know, very... Um, uh, coherent. Short, tight, and coherent it is. Chernow then tells us about why Miranda sometimes needed to change stories about Hamilton, change them around to make the musical work. He would always have, I thought, a, a very plausible um, explanation of why he had changed something. I mean, I can just give you one, because uh, it comes right at the beginning of the show, um, that um, the show begins right at the start of the American Revolution, and he has uh, John Lawrence and uh, Lafayette in New York um, a year or two before he actually you know, meets them. So I said to him, Lynn, you know, you know he, <laughs> this is 1775, 76, but they didn't you know, meet Hamilton until 1777. Uh, but he wanted to, um, one of Hamilton's first friends when he came to New York was a tailor named Hercules Mulligan. Yeah, yeah. I think Lynn found the name irresistible. Uh, <laughs> and Lynn wanted to start um, a series of quartets that run through the first act of Hamilton with his friends Mulligan. Lawrence and uh, uh, Lafayette, which means that with Lawrence and Lafayette, he has to introduce them, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit earlier than they mm-hmm. appear. So, um, uh, you know, there are moments where you have to scramble the time sequence yeah. a little bit. There are moments where you sort of have to collapse, you know, different events. And so it goes. And here's a Broadway talent teaching an historian a little bit about his craft and his medium. And here, finally, is Ron Chernow on why folks are loving the musical Hamilton. Manuel has done something extraordinary. He's made American history hip and cool Mm. and erudite at the same time. Mm. And only he could have done it. Because very very often, without mentioning any specific examples, when people... You know, stage or screen, uh, do the uh, founding era. Yeah. They kind of dumb it down. They seem to start out with the um, mm-hmm. assumption that this is boring, dated stuff. No one's really interested in this stuff. So we better have a lot of action. We better have a lot of cannons, you know, booming and muskets, you know, firing. We better try to, you know, spice it up with some sex. Um, but there's an underlying assumption that the, the contemporary audience is going to find boring. Uh, Lynn, instead of finding the history constraining he finds the history liberating he mm. finds it exciting mm-hmm. and the more deeply he gets into the history that the more dramatic it's going to be and I think the audience feels that mm. so this is like the um, uh, history class of a lifetime mm. uh, seeing this uh, the show and uh, we've had kids as young as 10 and 11 come down to see the show and just absolutely uh, adore it and at the same time you know highly you know literate 
uh, adults have, have seen it and took um, pleasure. They're kind of, you know, if you don't know anything about the period, you'll learn an enormous amount. If you do know a lot about the period... Mm. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Alexander Hamilton. And by the way, we believe this, too, here at our show, that if you just tell the story, people will be interested in it. And we're going to continue telling these great stories from our past, because they are lock solid and here in our present, alive and kicking. This is Our American Stories, and you can hear all of this on OurAmericanNetwork.org, and it's all brought to you by Hillsdale College.